mental health is is very fragile and to do this kind of work you need to take care of yourself welcome to the prosperous and happy life podcast i'm mary hagerman investment advisor financial planner and portfolio manager with raymond james in montreal In this podcast, I'm delighted to share tips and experiences from my quest to help my clients be prosperous and happy. For over 30 years, I've worked with thousands of clients and countless experts, all looking to have a rich and fulfilling life. My interests go far beyond the realm of money, and you'll get a taste of that here. In my interviews, I share stories and wisdom along with advice from the many experts I've encountered. You can put all of this to good use in your life or your work or both. I hope you'll join me each month for a new episode, either on Spotify or Google Podcasts. Please subscribe, like, and share with friends. One year ago from the taping of this episode, Our worlds were rocked by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The markets dropped and inflation spiked. Yes, it hurt our wallets and portfolios, but what it's done to the lives of the people on the ground of this senseless war is heart-wrenching. In this episode, I talk with an incredible woman and outstanding humanitarian, Violaine Desrosiers. She has been working to make this world a better place all of her adult life. The list is long, but she's worked with various humanitarian organizations in Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, as well as having worked with the International Bureau for Children's Rights. She has also been the head of one of Canada's largest private foundations. And in 2018, Violaine received the Marcel Côté Award from the Public Policy Forum of Canada, which recognizes the contribution of Quebec leaders who have demonstrated exceptional leadership in the field of public policy and civic discourse. Now, Violaine Desrosiers is head of the Red Cross operations in Ukraine, and that's where I reached her today. I'm joined in this interview by my podcast producer, Nicholas Saranchek, who is of Ukrainian descent. So we are really privileged to be able to set up this conversation with you, Violaine. I am so happy to be able to connect. Welcome to the Prosperous and Happy Life podcast. Thank you very much, Mary. I'm very happy to be with you today. So tell everyone, where are you actually located right now for this conversation? So right now I am in Kiev in Ukraine, where I live and where I work. And I've been here for the last eight months. Yeah, because we met like over a year ago. And uh, at that point, you were working with the Red Cross, but in Lebanon, sorry, Syria. (laughs) So how did you end up in Ukraine? So, you know, I have a very long history with the Red Cross and um, I've been working with the Red Cross in many places in different parts of the world and in, uh, in different kinds of context. Um, and so, of course, it's, uh, it's a passion 
for me. And um, when I was in Syria, our projects were coming to an end, uh, not because uh, the needs were not there anymore, but because our funding was coming to an end. And unfortunately, we had to to exit our, our projects there. And, and then the war started, started in Ukraine. And I was so disturbed by the whole thing. I felt that um, I needed to do something. And I just raised my hand and I volunteered and I, I, I called some people I knew who were already involved at the beginning of the operation. And I said, look, if there's a need for for my profile, for somebody with um, with my experience, I'm I'm willing to uh, to move over to Ukraine. So that's how I ended up here, um, and I came in June, beginning of June, and I've been here since then. Okay, I actually have a question uh, to ask you too, Violen, because uh, it also ties in a little bit to uh, my personal family heritage. So my grandparents were born and raised in Ukraine, and they also lived through World War II at the time before they had moved to Canada. So I've never been myself, but I just heard stories of what life was like over there back at that time. And judging by everything that I've seen in the newspapers, on television, or even on uh, the internet, it's I can only imagine what life is like in Ukraine like now. So given your experience, could you give us a sense of what a day looks like for you? That's a very good question. And I have this conversation with my friends and family, people in Canada who are curious about what's going on. And I, what I can say is Ukraine is a very big country and it's quite diverse culturally, language-wise, and also in terms of the current situation, it, it is very different depending on where you are in Ukraine. So it's a little bit like, of course, it's smaller than Canada, but it's a little bit like if we were in, in let's say, in Montreal and, and there is a war going on in, in British Columbia and the front line is between Alberta and British Columbia, it, it's quite far away from, from Kiev. Um, however, of course, now the conflict has spread uh, all over the country because we are not just experiencing uh, a war that is happening um, by land, because at the beginning of the conflict, you might remember that it was a lot of, you know, armies um, uh, by land with tanks. Now we're also uh, having air attacks um, and missiles. So that is changing the situation quite um, in a way that, you know, the, there's no more safe space in the country. And so for us in Kyiv, uh, of course, it's a little bit uh, easier than it is for people who are on the front lines in the east, uh, in, in closer to the Russian border. But still, we have several raid alar alerts uh, per day. Uh, today, we had like three or four, I think. Um, we have sometimes um, direct attacks with explosions, and when that happens, we have to shelter. So we basically have space in our office, in our homes, and on the street. Uh, usually people use the metro stations where we can hide and we can shelter uh, for, for the duration of the, of the alarm. 
Um, and that is, is quite a very, um, sometimes it's, it's, it feels a little bit weird because we are in, a, in Europe and, you know, I have worked and live in uh, many conflict areas in my career, but here it's like if, if we were in Montreal, for instance, or in Toronto, and, you know, we have our daily life, life goes on, you know, the shops are open, the bars and restaurants are open, and uh, life goes on, and then suddenly there is an air raid alert, and then everyone goes you know, to hide in, in the bunkers and in the shelters. And then there's no one on the street anymore. And and then when this is over, then people come out again and then they continue their life and they go to the pub, you know, to have a drink with their friends. And so, so there is a bit of, um, uh, yeah, it's a disrupted life. But, but in urban areas, um, we still continue to have uh, more or less a normal life. Uh, but of course, in the rural areas, it is it is very very bad, and uh, this is where you know most of the destruction happens, and where people are in constant fear um, of you know losing their their family members. This is where there are most casualties at the moment. Um, so, so the conflict is very different and it exper it's experienced very differently from uh, depending where you are in the country. That's for the life. And then, you know, there's a whole other chapter for what our work looks like. And uh, you actually touched on uh, language too when you got there. So I can imagine that based on the amount of travels you've done across Europe for, for your job, that uh, it meant you had to adapt to the languages over there. Like if I was to give a personal example, I only know a few words in Ukrainian, like me tato would be my dad, Dobreden, uh, I believe is good morning. So how did you uh, adapt to uh, the language uh, when you got into Ukraine? That is my biggest frustration at the moment. I have to say, I'm I'm really into languages. I already speak several languages. Uh, when I was in working in the Middle East, I learned Arabic, and when I when I came here, I was really motivated and and determined to learn Ukrainian. And I am learning. I, I have um, a teacher, and I I, uh, I learn, but it's a slow learning for sure. It's a complex language, uh, and it's not a language that I'm used to, so it's it's a challenge. But yeah, I mean, I'm trying to to have at least the basics. You know, hello, uh, good evening, uh, thank you, yes, no, you know, <laughs> uh, and and I'm trying to get to a point where I, I can I can do my shopping. In Ukrainian, but it takes time, and um, to learn languages, you also have to spend quite a lot of time studying, which I don't have at the moment. I'm, my days are, are, are filled with uh, with work, and, and it's quite intense. Um, so, so this is a challenge, um, but definitely not a lot of people speak English here. So it's it's the communicate we have. Of course, we work. Most of our staff here are Ukrainian, um, so we we do work uh, alongside with them, and uh, and of course, Ukrainians that are in high functions, um, 
you know, of, of my counterparts, for instance, in in different institutions in the government, uh, they all speak English because they're very highly educated, and most of of those people speak English. So, yeah, but it is a challenge. Every time we we change, we go to another place. We have to, you know, learn again a new language. But it's it, it's interesting and. Learning a language is also learning about the culture and the history, so it's uh, it's quite uh, fascinating. I I I suppose you work with interpreters. As we well. do have interpreters for yes. some meetings. Yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that you were so proficient in so many languages, and uh, I applaud you for that. In addition to to everything else. Um, You've you've just done so much over the course of your career, Violaine, and you're still, I consider, a young woman. Um, how did you become interested in humanitarian work, and how did you end up at the Red Cross? So it's not me that ended up in the Red Cross. It's the Red Cross who ended up in me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um I started very at a very young age, although I, I am still young. Uh, thank you very much, Mary, for that. <laughs> um, I, um, I actually started when I was a teenager. I was a volunteer for my local Red Cross. Uh, I am originally from Quebec City. And uh, I started volunteering. I was like 15 years old and... Um, I was working with uh, with the local Red Cross, and we were, you know, doing a lot of work in support of people who were experiencing natural disaster, or um, their home uh, would go on fire, or you know, floods. Uh, so there was a lot of social work also involved, and I, I was a volunteer, and um, and then I started to get really interested in the Red Cross in general, and started to learn that the Red Cross was international, and uh, started to be interested in 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 what the Red Cross was doing uh, outside of Canada. And in the meantime, of course, I, I studied. I I went to university. I studied uh, political science and uh, international law. And again, I got to know more about the Red Cross during my university studies because the Red Cross is very is a, is a key organization in uh, humanitarian international law, uh, especially the law of armed conflict. Um, and it is a, a, an international recognized um, mandate to protect people, civilians, but also civil infrastructure um, during conflict. And so uh, studying international law really got me into a, a bit more about what the Red Cross role and mandate is internationally. And then I, I just, you know, it, it happened very organically. I I always um, think that I didn't really have a career path, but opportunities came to me. And then um, I started to go. My first mission was uh, in uh, in Bosnia after the war, and I was working with victims of landmines. Um, and then the tsunami happened. I don't know if you remember the, the big tsunami in Southeast Asia in 2000. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Get yeah, it. so then I got deployed and then mm. it never really stopped until I decided to stop it for a few years <laughs> because I did take a break. Uh, I did uh, came back to work in Canada for about eight years um, and then I started again a few, three years ago, just just when, when COVID started. Well, I'm sure it takes a very special person to be able to do the sort of work that you do, and especially to be now in a war zone. Um, we've just been through, you know, COVID, which, of course, you've had that on top of everything else, too. And talking about mental resiliency has become so important um, following COVID. But for someone like you who faces death and, uh, you know, in a war zone, how do you preserve and, and strengthen your mental res resiliency? Like what keeps you moving forward? This is a very good question. Um, and what I have learned over the years is that mental health is, is very fragile. And to do this kind of work, you need to take care of yourself. Uh, and this is the first thing that I have learned when I started working with the Red Cross as a volunteer. I was, uh, you know, uh, working with the first aid. I, I did like a first aid training. And it's the first thing that you learn uh, when you learn how to do first aid is, is to take care of, to secure yourself before helping someone. And, right. and it's the same principle as the mask in the plane, on the plane. You know, when they say you put your mask first before you help somebody to, to put their masks on. So it, it's, it's the same principle for all the, the people who work in the same kind of, uh, of, of work that is helping others. You, you have to secure your own emotional psychological and physical safety before you can actually help anyone. Yeah. How do you do that? Like, do you have any special techniques? Well, yeah. I mean, the typical ones are, you know, meditation and yoga and exercise and things like that. But I think that um, one of, that's easy to say, but, you know, I think also I, I've always tried to maintain a, a very close network of friends and people that I like around me, even if I'm not physically with them. At the beginning of my career, it was much, much more difficult because there was no internet. Uh, when I started, you know, in the, the late 90s, there was no internet. So we, we were completely cut off uh, from everyone for months. And, uh, and that was really difficult. So you had to really cope with your colleagues and, you know, try to make some connections uh, locally. Now with, with all the social media, it's much easier. But for me, it's really important to, to maintain that connection with close friends and talk to them on a regular basis and connect with my family as well. 
Um, and I do also like, you know, massage and um, I always try to find like a good massage therapist everywhere I go. And, and so this is also something that I enjoy. But, but it, 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 it also does require a lot of discipline. Um, it's easy just to, you know, let uh, things overwhelm you and uh, the kind of work we do, it never stops. So, yeah, it's, it's very important to maintain a balance. Well, I'm sure there's no nine to five, so you have to integrate your self-care and be disciplined about that. And as we said in an earlier podcast with a uh, psychologist, um, relationships are really integral to our sense of fulfillment, our happiness, our intrinsic happiness. So that's wonderful mm -hmm. what you said. And it's true that the internet can assist in bringing us that type of contact, although I'm sure you don't always have good connections. <laughs> no, but also, you know, Mary, the one thing that I realized also is I'm, I'm doing a job that provides me a lot of satisfaction. And that also helps me, you know, in the, in the tough times, sometimes I just want to, you know, when I'm very tired and I, I miss, you know, my partner and I miss my, my family and my friends, I, I sometimes I, I come to a point where I just, you know, I want to cry and I feel a bit uh, alone. But right. I, on the other hand, you know, when I, uh, I kind of shake myself a little bit, I, I am so privileged I am. I know so many people who don't like their jobs. I know so many people who are dreaming about, you know, a career to that is uh, meaningful for them, and that is not just about making money, but it's also about being fulfilling. And I mean, I have that. So it's it's also like a, it compensates, you know, for for the tough times. Uh, and I feel. I've always uh, thought that I am extremely privileged to to do this kind of work. Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And maybe you could find a little story that you could tell us of, and I'm sure you've got a lot of stories, but something that captures that sense of fulfillment that you get in your work. Yeah, I mean, I, I have so many stories, um, but I am, I meet extraordinary Ukrainians every day. I, I am so grateful to, to be able to meet those people because I think um, the, the question that Nick asked at, at the beginning, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to see the perception about Ukraine from outside. And what people see on TV is really not the reality. I mean, Ukrainians are... Um, are extremely uh, modern, uh, smart, innovative. Uh, they have a great sense of humor. They are they they have a personality that is really interesting as a people, like in in general. And and we see that also being reflected in in what the, the government strategy is, you know, around communication. And Zelensky's strategy uh, to, to mobilize people uh, in this uh, in this war effort, and I meet every day. So I could I could tell you a story about you know the people we help, but the 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 things that come to my mind is the wonderful woman 
that I meet every day. And starting from my colleagues, I work with extraordinary women and these women, they, you know, they have children, they have husbands that are always at risk of being recruited to go to fight. And this is a constant stress for all families here. They have sons that are at a, a, in an age also where they, they are, you know, the first on the list to, to be recruited to, to go to the front line. And these women are so strong. They are becoming the pillar of, of the family. They work. They don't miss one day of work, despite, you know, the situation. Even sometimes in the morning, we have bombings uh, on Kiev. Well, they show up in the office as soon as they can. Uh, they are extremely devoted and dedicated, highly professional. I also met some uh, some women in in the public function in the government of Ukraine who are young women uh, that have children, and they at the beginning of the war they send their children with family members outside of Ukraine uh, in Europe mainly. To, to, to put their children in a safe place. And they came back to Ukraine to serve their country. And this serving their, their country is not just, you know, taking a weapon and, and going to fight. It's, it's the whole public service at the moment that is put uh, to, to the service of, uh, of, this, uh, of this war. And um, I find that very inspiring and it's it's quite extraordinary to see um, all sorts of women you know business women uh, designers entrepreneurs artists and uh, and and these women are the 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 the, the quiet fighting force in this country and and I'm um, I'm always amazed you know to hear about those stories so it's, um, yeah, it's quite inspiring. That's great. That's, that's fantastic. And, and it's wonderful to hear that um, the women are such pillars because we, we obviously hear a lot about the men who are fighting and they're so courageous. And, but um, it's everyone. It's the men, the women, too. So it's been interesting to hear your perspective, given that you're living basically right now in Ukraine to help with them. And it's very inspiring. Now, we obviously don't know how long the war will last uh, over there, but once it is over, what will your work look like uh, from then? Yeah, we talk about that every day. <laughs> um, it's part of, of, you know, our planning uh, discussions. And, and right now we're also looking at different scenarios because as you say, it's very difficult for anyone to predict what's going to happen. And uh, it, is, it makes it even more difficult for us to plan the support to, to the Ukrainians and, and the humanitarian assistance. But what we see at the moment is that the needs are, are going to remain uh, quite long after the end of this conflict. So even if the war was to finish tomorrow, which is unlikely, the, the needs and the, the damages uh, of the last year of conflict are so big that there will be a need for reconstruction, 
there will be a need for um, rehabilitation, physical and psychological rehabilitation of, of a lot of people that have been um, experiencing trauma, physical or, or psychological trauma during the, the war. There is a enormous amount, I think it's half of the population of, of Ukraine that fled the country. So there are refugees outside of Ukraine. These people, they will need to come back and we need to be able to facilitate that for them. And, you know, that means also reintegrating the, the, the work market, um, the school, this, you know, rehabilitation of schools that have been destroyed, uh, health facilities, uh, developing programs for uh, reaching out to people in the remote areas. There's a number of things that at the moment are you know, the, the, the government of Ukraine needs to focus its resources on the current crisis. And during that time, they're not investing in their infrastructure. They're not investing in, in education. They're not investing in, in other sectors. So these are all things that will need to, to be taken care of uh, once the, the conflict is over. Um, not to say, you know, the physical reconstruction of houses and um, and uh, power infrastructure, um, etc. So, so there will be a lot of work. It's not over for us, for sure. It certainly doesn't sound like it. I'm I'm sure there's a lot to do, and for. Us here in North America, we've been following this war very, very closely and, you know, with, with a, a great amount of disbelief in the beginning. And now it, it's, it's kind of set in as what seems to be a long protracted uh, conflict. So often we feel helpless. Uh, what do you think that we can do on our end to, to help the, this, the people of Ukraine? Well, obviously, I mean, the best way to help is always by sending money and, and providing money to organizations that, that are working um, in Ukraine. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm saying that I'm not uh, advocating specifically for the Red Cross. I think there are lots of great organizations who are working here. Um, and... I, I have to say I was in Canada for, for the, the holiday during Christmas and I was really touched by all the support that were that we are showing to Ukrainians, you know, whether it is uh, through the, uh, the, the year-end review, you know, on, um, I don't know if, if, you, if you have watched um, the, the year-end review and the there was a lot of tribute to Ukrainians and I was also amazed to see you know you go into a shop uh, or a restaurant and then they say oh well you know part of the profit will be going to Ukraine so I I, I, I was really amazed by the solidarity and how much Canadian I mean you know in Ukraine for the Red Cross the the biggest donor is uh, is uh, Canadian public I'm not surprised yeah. yeah, it's it's important to say that because um, the Canadians have been the most generous uh, to support the the Red Cross work here in Ukraine, and the government of Canada has also given a lot of money um, to the Red Cross and other organizations. So it, it is absolutely 
there are lots of linkages uh, between Canada and Ukraine, obviously. Uh, a, a common history also uh, through through the, the immigration. But I would say keep supporting Ukrainians by showing solidarity and by talking about Ukraine and by opening doors for Ukrainians who want to come and work and stay in Canada. I think this is the best way we can support at the moment. Well, we've set up a special initiative to help raise funds for the Red Cross in Ukraine, and I'll be saying a bit more about that in a minute. But before we finish, I like to ask all of our guests the same question at the end of the podcast. And in your case, the context is a bit special, but nevertheless, um, this is the Prosperous and Happy Life podcast. So what does prosperity and happiness mean to you? I would say that, you know, it, it sounds a bit uh, contradictory or a bit strange to say that <laughs> because I'm working and, and living in, in, in a war zone. But I think even more importantly, I think because I am living here and I've been experiencing this in other places as well, I know very well that to be happy, you need to be emotionally psychologically and physically safe and that is what drives me in my work because that is exactly what the Red Cross is about is to provide that safety net for people and that safety you know provide refuge somehow and 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 the Red Cross is a symbol of of help um, and I think that for having seen so much suffering and so much destruction here or elsewhere, I would say that this is the, the privilege that most of us have and we don't always appreciate that. And, um, you know, when I was in, in Montreal for, for the holidays, I was just realizing, oh my God, I can sleep nonstop for, for 12 hours without being woken up by an air raid alarm. And having to, to, you know, get up from my bed in the middle of the night and go to the bunker. And just that was such a, a luxury in a way. And, um, and having, uh, you know, electricity, 24-hour water, uh, all that is, is and, a, and a warm home. Uh, it, it's part of happiness. It's small things, but I think this is, this is what, you know, in life, if you have health, and you have a roof on your head and you, you, are, you are not alone and you have people around you that, that you love. And I think that's really, that's all we need, really. Well, that's great. I think you've summed it up perfectly. And I want to thank you again, Violaine, for speaking with us today. We really do applaud your work and we look forward to helping the Red Cross. So stay safe and be prosperous and happy. Thank you very much, Mary and Nick. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for tuning in. And please make sure to subscribe to The Prosperous and Happy Life on Spotify, Captivate, or Google Podcasts. We'll be releasing new episodes the last Friday of every month. You can help support the Red Cross operations in Ukraine by donating to our special Love Not War initiative, 
organized through my private foundation, which will be matching all donations throughout the month of March. Details are in the show notes and on my website, www.maryhagerman.ca. You can also sign up there for our free monthly newsletter. And in the meantime, you can follow me on LinkedIn and Facebook at Mary Hagerman. The link is in the description box below. See you next time. This podcast has been prepared by and expressed the opinions of Mary Hagerman and not necessarily the opinions of Raymond James Limited. Statistics, data, and other information presented are from sources RJL believes to be reliable, but their accuracy cannot be guaranteed. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchases of securities. Investors considering any investment should consult with their investment advisor to ensure that it is suitable for the investor's circumstances and risk tolerances before making any investment decisions. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and should not be construed as providing legal accounting and or tax advice. Should viewers have any specific questions and or issues in these areas, please consult your legal, tax, and or accounting advisor. RJL is a member of the Canadian Investors Protection Fund.